If you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And the title of this sermon is The Miracle of Christmas. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Miraculous. It's a word that gets used a lot for things that we think are awesome. The seven mile miracle. It's the seven miles of the north shore of Oahu that have some of the world's greatest surf spots. The seven mile miracle. Miracle. The true story of Herb Brooks, the player turned coach who led the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team to victory over the seemingly invincible Soviet squad. Disney movie. Miraculous. Or miracle. You know, when an underdog team comes back from defeat and beats their rival. It's a miracle. We even have Miracle Whip, which I I read was hot to those struggling during the Depression as a way to make vegetables, fruit, and salads more flavorful for less money. It's a miracle. (laughs) By definition, a miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Christmas is a miracle. That's my thesis statement for today. Christmas is a miracle. And I don't mean the holiday, or getting all of your shopping done, or getting your house looking perfect with the right tree and the right amounts of lights. I mean the birth of Jesus Christ. It's miraculous. My goal for this morning is to take the well-known story, the one we hear every year around this time, and to stand in awe, kind of like my two-year-old son, Asher, who you saw running around here this morning. Uh, When he looks at the moon, it doesn't matter how many times he sees it, he looks in awe and he says, Daddy, look at the moon. I want us to this morning look at the birth of Christ, to meditate on it, and to stand in awe and wonder and worship at this miracle. So let's dive into the text. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love how all four Gospels tell the same true story, but do it in different ways. They're painting the same picture, but with different brushes and different colors to highlight accurately and truly the different aspects of who Jesus is. When it comes to Jesus' birth story, this much is evident. Mark, as we learned, doesn't even have a birth narrative. He's highlighting Jesus as the second Adam, who just appears on the scene as a grown man. John, on the other hand, starts his gospel like this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. One of John's paintbrushes, so to speak, is used to show us Jesus' power and his preeminence. Luke, unlike Mark, does have a birth narrative, and it's told mainly from the perspective of Mary. It's awesome. Uh, we read it earlier. It's typically the one that's told on Christmas because it's the most detailed. Luke's gospel account consistently shows Jesus to be for the least and the lowest in society of that time. Shepherds, women, and the poor. Next year on Christmas, we'll probably study this exact text in the book of Luke. But Matthew's gospel account... The one that we just read, our text for this morning, is from the perspective of Joseph, who can sometimes seem unimportant to the whole Christmas story, right? I mean, he's usually there in the nativity scene, but he just stands there. He's kind of passive, and usually no more important than one of the the extras who fill the stage. But As we walk through this text, I think you'll see it a little bit different. So let's start again with verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I'm going to come back to this word birth in just a bit, but for now I'm going to skip it and kind of focus in on Joseph. To fully understand what's going on here, we need to know this. Modern day engagement for marriage and what's going on here in our text are two very, very different things. Today, engagement is a commitment. But engagements get broken off all the time. 
with no need for legal involvement or, or papers being filed. That's not what betrothal is here in our text. Now understand that back then there were three different and distinct stages. Engagement, betrothal, and marriage. Engagement, betrothal, and marriage. Engagement was typically something set up by parents. The fathers of the two families would engage the couple, usually when they were in childhood. Then, when it was time, and if nothing immoral had taken place, the couple was betrothed about a year before the wedding was to take place. And this is important. This betrothal was legally binding. To call it off at this point was equivalent to divorce. It required legal papers. So even though the man and the woman aren't living together or sleeping together at this point, they were known as husband and wife. That's why Joseph is called her husband in verse 19. So with that in mind, let's reread verses 18 and 19 again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, to fully understand Joseph's dilemma here, and that's not at all to downplay Mary's. Now, I can't imagine what she must have been going through. But let's try this. Take out the words from the Holy Spirit, from verse 18. Remember, Joseph didn't know this information yet. And even when we read this story, we read those words from the Holy Spirit with a theological understanding of what's going on. Joseph has none of this. He's betrothed to Mary. He hasn't had any physical relationship with her. And she's pregnant. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. How would you feel? Angry? Jealous? Confused? Humiliated? At this point, the only explanation is that Mary has been with another man. How would you feel? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, says this actually gives instructions for something like this. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24 says, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. To just overlook this sin would be for Joseph to publicly admit guilt. He'd essentially have to say, yeah, the, the child's ours. We're guilty. That would be a lie. And it would be disregarding God's law. On the other hand, Joseph loves Mary. 
and wants to show compassion on her. So on one shoulder, you have God's law. And on the other shoulder, you have mercy. This isn't a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. So what in the world should Joseph do? Do you feel that dilemma? Here's something I want us to see very clearly. Whatever must have been going through Joseph's head and certainly his heart, whatever that was, he doesn't act rashly. J.C. Ryle says this so well. He says, It is a beautiful example of godly wisdom and tender consideration for others. He, meaning Joseph, saw the appearance of evil in her, who was his espoused wife, but he did nothing rashly. He waited patiently to have the line of duty made clear. In all probability, he laid the matter before God in prayer. He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28:16. So Joseph doesn't immediately fly off the handle like most of us would. He's patient, not rash. This isn't at all the main point of the text. But isn't Joseph a great example to us men? Have you ever been offended? Maybe even sinned against seriously? I recommend to us Joseph's posture here. He's not rash. He's slow and prayerful. So, what did he decide? Our text tells us. It says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Amazing, huh? He completely acts with her best interest in mind. This is a selfless act if I've ever seen one. Again, Joseph would have been completely just in calling for her to be stoned publicly. That would have cleared his name with everyone else. But he doesn't. He doesn't take her to the courts and have her humiliated. He acts with compassion and with her best interest in mind. Joseph isn't passive here. This is what I want us to see. This is a big-time decision. It's an honorable decision. And within moments of making this decision, we read in verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So now, the truth that was revealed to us back in verse 18 gets revealed to Joseph. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is miraculous by definition. Okay, now I want to go back to the beginning of verse 18 and pick up this word birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
Guess what the Greek word is for birth here? Genesis. It's where we get the word for the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Okay, so the Spirit is involved in the Genesis of Jesus Christ. That's what it's telling us. Let's look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Do you see that? We've got the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters in the genesis of the world. Light comes into darkness. Look at what Luke tells us about the Spirit here in his narrative of Jesus' birth. Gabriel, an angel, shows up and tells Mary that she's pregnant. Luke 1, 34-36, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, in Genesis, the Holy Spirit hovers over. Here in Luke, the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. R.C. Sproul writes this, From the biblical perspective, the genesis of life in the first place was through the power of the spirit of life, the spirit of God. Gabriel was declaring to Mary that the same power by which the universe was made, that same power that brought light out of darkness originally, is the power that will overshadow her womb and produce a son. Now, when thinking about these things, There are so many theological landmines that we can accidentally step on if we're not careful here. What we're not saying, and I want to be really clear here, what we're not saying is that Jesus didn't exist before this moment and that he was created by the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're saying. That would be heresy and not true. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that the Holy Spirit made the pre-existent second person of the Trinity, Jesus, into a human being. While he existed before this and wasn't made by the Holy Spirit, or anyone for that matter. We confess this in the Nicene Creed, right? Earlier we said, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. But here, the Holy Spirit is not not making Jesus, but he's knitting Jesus' humanity together. Psalm 139, 13 through 14, we've all read this text before. For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. 
genesising Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain the biology here, but that's what's happening. One systematic theology summarizes it this way. It says, remaining, speaking of Jesus, remaining what he was. He became what he was not. In other words, while Jesus continued remaining what he was, that is fully divine, he also became what he previously had not been, that is, fully human as well. Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. Yes, it's mysterious, and it's miraculous. And it's our only hope. Why do I say this? Well, let's stop and do some theology here. Scripture tells us that Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam in the Garden of Eden, acted as our federal head. He acted as a representative for all of us. When he sinned in the Garden by disobeying, and rebelling against God, he represented us. And sin entered into the world. And we all, every single one of us, inherit Adam's sin nature. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 19 says it this way. I realize this is a long text, but it's really helpful just to read it. So Romans 5, 12 through 19 says... Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, referring to Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, here we go, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you see that? Here's the the core of what I want us to see in that text. Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all men. We inherit Adam's sin nature. Therefore, we sin. What does this have to do with Matthew 1 and Jesus' birth? Everything. Through the virgin birth, 
Jesus didn't inherit sin nature through Adam, nor did he inherit guilt and condemnation. Now, I'm not saying that Mary was sinless, as Roman Catholics do. Scripture doesn't teach this anywhere. But what I am saying is that Jesus skipped the line of Adam in the most significant and important way. He's sinless, both in nature and in practice. You with me? Okay. He is fully man. He's like us, except for without sin. As one commentator says, Jesus possesses the full range of human characteristics, physically, mentally, emotionally. And because of that, two things are true. Number one, Jesus is fully able to identify with us and sympathize with us. Fully human. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So, Jesus is fully able to identify with us and sympathize with us. But second, Jesus is able to step in as our substitute. If Jesus had not been fully man, he couldn't have died in our place. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says this. It says, therefore he, meaning Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He also couldn't have obeyed God's law in our place if he hadn't have been fully human. This is why Paul writes this in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was fully human, and this matters. And he's fully God. His birth is miraculous. And from the Holy Spirit, again, in the Nicene Creed, we confess this. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. Similarly, in the Apostles' Creed, we confess this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. These truths are central to Christianity. They're not just nice Christmas sentiments. Without Jesus being fully God and fully man, we have no hope of our sins being atoned for. Oh, and... 
One more important truth to consider. Does anyone remember where the first gospel in the Bible is? Anyone? Genesis 3.15. Someone over here said it. It's known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. So even before the curses are given to the man and the woman, God curses Satan and promises good news for us. Genesis 3.15 says this. This is glorious. God says to, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you didn't catch that, from the very beginning, God promises that a seed or an offspring of woman will crush the head of Satan. This offspring of woman is going to win in the end. That's the promise that God makes. He'll be Satan's ultimate demise. Jesus' humanity is part of that. He was and is that offspring and that snake crusher. So, let's jump back into our text in Matthew after all of that. Back to verse 20. This is speaking of Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Did you notice how the angel addressed Joseph? Joseph, son of David. This is important. We learned in the book of Mark that this phrase, son of David, as applied to Jesus, is a big, big deal. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the David being referred to is King David in the Old Testament. And there in the Old Testament, God made a promise to David that a king would come from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David to reign forever. Other than here, in our text, Jesus is the only other one in Scripture referred to as son of David. So if you look back in Matthew's genealogy, the first 17 verses of Matthew, he intentionally includes all of these names to make sure that his Jewish audience doesn't miss it. Jesus is from the line of Judah and of David. Joseph, though a humble carpenter, has royal blood. But again, Joseph isn't just along for the ride here. He's not an extra. He's an important part of this equation. By taking Mary as his wife, and then by, by naming Jesus, which we'll get to in a second, Joseph is legally adopting Jesus and giving Jesus the status of a descendant of David. So let's keep going. Verse 21. The angel of the Lord continues to tell Joseph, verse 21, She will, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
This is another one of those cultural things that I've got to stop and explain. Naming rights for Jewish parents was important. Naming, in general, was a symbol of authority. We see God giving Adam the role of naming each of the animals in the garden. So, in general, fathers had the important right of naming their children. But, Sproul rightfully points out that throughout the Old Testament, when a child was born into specific historical and redemptive purposes, God took away the privilege from the parent and named the child himself, indicating that the child belonged to him. So, we see this even happening in the New Testament with John the Baptist, born to Zacharias in Luke 1.13. Same here. It's as if God is reaching down and saying, Mine! This one's mine! In naming Jesus, God the Father is claiming naming rights. Jesus is God's Son. He's fully human, yes, and fully divine. And what is it that God names him? Jesus. Jesus. This name means Yahweh, or Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. This is what God tells Joseph to name him, and he says, for he will save his people from their sins. If the virgin birth isn't miraculous enough, this baby will save his people from their sins. Now understand this. Today, so many of us take sin lightly. We don't have a clue what the true consequences of sin are. Joseph, on the other hand, and, and those of his time, wouldn't have been so naive. They saw repetitively the cost of sin. They saw blood sacrifices that had to be paid for their sin. They knew that the wages of sin was death. They understood that when they sinned, something had to die. So, for, for this angel to tell Joseph, name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins, is miraculous. This is one of those two-year-old staring at the moon moments. I know we've read this text and seen Christmas plays, and we know that Jesus came to save his people. But can we just stop and stand in absolute awe of this again? This child, born of a virgin, came to save his people from their sins. And all of this was a part of God's plan, prophesied beforehand. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this comes from Isaiah chapter 7, written about 700 years before Jesus' birth. That's what he's quoting here. Isaiah 7 Verses 13 and 14. 
And here it is, 700 years before Jesus' birth. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to, to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you see that? This was a promise to who? The house of David. I'm not going to get too far down in the weeds here. But there was a child born in Isaiah chapter 8. What I'll say emphatically is this, that the child in Isaiah 8 isn't the fulfillment or the full fulfillment of this prophecy. If you keep reading, especially in Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11, they're still looking for a child to come in the future. Isaiah 9 verses 6 through 7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, there it is again, and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is this child to come. He's the full fulfillment of Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11. He's Emmanuel. And I love this. It gets interpreted or translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus isn't just for the Hebrews. He's for the Gentiles as well. He's Jesus, born of a virgin, fully man, and he's Emmanuel, God with us, fully God. God is faithful to his word. He promised this child in this way in Isaiah 7. And he fulfills his word in Matthew 1. When God promises something in his word, he keeps it every time. Can you imagine the awe with which Joseph heard these words? First, speaking to Jesus' office. He's to name this child Jesus. Savior, but also speaking to his nature. The child will be called Emmanuel, God with us. The child that that Mary and Joseph would raise would literally be God with them. Can you imagine the amount of comfort and confidence that that would bring? No matter what happened, Things were going to be all right. Why? Because God was with them. Wouldn't that be great to know? Well, you can. I want to remind us about the the other bookend to this gospel account. At the end of Matthew, this child, Jesus, 
Emmanuel, God with us, says this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here we go. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. God is with us always to the end of the age. That's a promise. Very quickly, and in closing, I want us just to quickly see Joseph's response to all of this. What does he do? Verses 24 and 25. It says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Do you see the beauty in this? Joseph wakes up and simply obeys. He does everything that God, through the angel, asks him to do. He takes his wife, stays pure, and called the child's name Jesus. There's nothing flashy about this, but he's a model of faithfulness. Have you ever noticed that Joseph doesn't speak a single word ever in the text? But as the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. And in this way, Joseph's life screams. No frills, just faithfulness. Obeying God one step at a time. Joseph isn't a passive bystander. Quiet though he is, he plays a crucial role in God's work of redemptive history. And you do too. God was with him, and he's with us today. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. Let's stand in awe of that. Let's pray.